like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as we are making our way, getting back into uh, this letter penned by the Apostle Paul in the mid-50s A.D. We uh, come to chapter 6, and I'd like to read the first eight verses for us. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's Word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys, for indeed it speaks to us concerning the person and work of your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would give us ears to hear eyes to see the things that Christ has done for us, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, to say that we live in a litigious culture would be a bit of an understatement. Just think about all of the uh, lawsuits that you read about in the news, whether it's between all of the major uh, tech companies, Apple suing Samsung and Samsung suing Apple. Or in in local politics, you think of uh, developers and how many times they're sued and they sue one another in order to just build a hotel. Or think about the political wrangling that is currently going on, the lawsuits that either, uh, uh, you know, the the administration is is, uh, bringing against Congress or Congress is bringing against the administration. It seems as if if you want to get anything done in the world today, you need to lawyer up and you need to have deep pockets. And if you want to try to get somebody to do something else, you have to say, I'll see you in court. Well, perhaps you might say, well, that's the way of the world. That's the way in which this world operates, but things should not be the same in the church. But sadly, we see the same thing happening within the church where Christians are bringing other Christians uh, to court, where there's a division within churches, and you see these lawsuits that are Uh, uh, on the front of the newspapers as churches are divided and they are going to the civil courts to settle their dispute. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. This, in fact, is exactly what was happening within the church at Corinth. And this is what the Apostle Paul begins to address in our passage today as Christians were bringing other believers to the civil courts in order to settle their disputes. And the Apostle Paul rebukes them for this problem that is going on within the church, and yet he also gets to the root of the cause. And it's not just the greed 
and the division that was going on, but it ultimately it is, as we will see, it is a failure of the church to act as the church. As we get into our passage, of course, in the context, it, at first glance, it appears as if the Apostle Paul is moving on to a new topic. In chapter 5, he was addressing the issue of this, uh, this case of sexual immorality that, that was so bad that even the Gentiles frowned upon such behavior. But now it seems as if he's addressing a new topic as he rebukes the Christians for taking their fellow believers to civil court. But as we remember the bigger context that the Apostle Paul is ultimately exhorting the Corinthians for their failure to exercise proper church discipline, we see how these two issues of sexual immorality and and lawsuits among believers actually flow together. Ultimately, both stem from the fact that the church was failing to exercise godly church discipline which is why he will go on in verse 9 through 11 to get back to that same warning that he had earlier, that these type of people, whether they be greedy people or sexually immoral people, will not inherit the kingdom of God and thus need to be disciplined. Ironically, the Corinthians were really good about judging the outsiders. They were really good about looking at the outside world around them and condemning such behavior and yet they were completely negligent to discipline those within their own ranks, those inside the church. But the Apostle Paul is reminding them that judgment begins in the household of God. He says, don't judge the outsiders. That's for God to do. Right now, the church needs to be focusing upon disciplining those within their ranks and those hypocrites who claim the name of Christ and yet live in open and unrepented sin, they need to be purged from their ranks. And here is the the irony, the tragic irony, is that while they failed to judge those within the church, they had no problem appealing to those outside the church as they dragged their fellow believers to the civil courts. And once again, we see this ugly issue of division rearing its head, although now it's not division within the church, but now that division is spilling out into the public sphere as they're bringing their fellow believers to the civil courts. And so Paul, in our passage, begins by saying, when one of you has a grievance against another, literally it is a matter that you have, and this is clearly in context, a legal issue pertaining to matters of daily life. That's how Paul characterizes it in verse 3. Paul calls these cases trivial in light of the final day judgment that God will bring at the last day. So clearly in the context here, we, we are, I think we're on firm ground to assume that these cases, these, these uh, grievances that Paul is talking about, are not what we call criminal cases, but rather what we call civil cases or civil claims. And Roman law actually did distinguish between the two, just as in our uh, judicial system, we distinguish between criminal cases and civil cases. Clearly here, the context are these civil cases, such as dispute over money or breach of contract or damages or injury that one might inflict upon another. The case that we read about in chapter 5 with this man who had taken his 
uh, stepmother to be his wife. That actually was a criminal case in Roman, in Roman law. And so perhaps part of what delivering this man over to Satan might entail is delivering him over to the civil authorities to be tried in a criminal case. But clearly here, what Paul has in mind are these petty disputes, what we might call small claims court. I remember as a kid, I used to watch a show called The People's Court with Judge Wapner, and he would always try these cases. This is the type of stuff we're talking about here. And yet Paul says, when you have these grievances with one another, how dare you? Take them before the unrighteous. Notice how Paul characterizes the judges and the juries of these civil courts at Corinth. He calls them the unrighteous in contrast to the saints. Here he's building off of what he said at the end of chapter 5, distinguished between those who are outside of the church and those who are inside of the church. Those who are outside are characterized as the unrighteous. Those who are inside are the saints the Holy One of God. And yet, how do, we care, how do we reconcile this type of language where Paul calls the, the civil judges the unrighteous? How do we reconcile that language with what we read, for example, in Romans chapter 13, where the apostle Paul says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for no authority exists apart from God's will. And he goes on to speak of the civil authorities as God's servants for our good. Peter echoes that same exact language in 1 Peter 2. So how do we reconcile Paul calling these these men the unrighteous, and yet in in another letter he says you need to submit to these people? Well, we need to keep in mind the context. We need to understand that part of common grace is that even wicked man, despite his fallen nature, he is capable of judging between right and wrong, albeit imperfectly. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you being evil know how to do good, how much more your heavenly Father? And so, at least in a relative sense, we can trust and rely and submit to the governing authorities that God in his wisdom places over us. And yet we also need to understand that at the end of the day, these civil authorities that Paul's talking about are unrighteous. Except why are they unrighteous? Well, I think Paul calls them the unrighteous because they are unbelievers, as he says in verse 6. So because they do not have faith in Christ, because they lack the grace and spirit of Christ, they do not accept the things of God because they are folly to them. As he said back in chapter 2, the natural man does not accept the things of God. They do not have the spirit of God. And so when they hear of the way of the cross, that stuff is utter foolishness to them. And yet, as Paul calls these civil courts, those, the judges and the juries that comprise the civil courts of Corinth at that day, as he calls them unrighteous, we need to also understand what we know historically about these courts. And we have very good evidence to show that the provincial courts in Corinth were extremely crooked and that the decks were stacked highly in favor of the rich and the powerful. Let me just give you a few examples of what we know of the first century courts there at Corinth. First of all, one could not even bring a case against another if the the person was of a higher rank. So, for example, a child could not sue his father. Uh, A servant could not sue 
his master. Only if you were of equal rank in society or if somebody was of a lower rank than you could you bring a lawsuit against them. Second of all, there was a requirement to put up the money that you would stand to lose up front. And so both sides in the dispute would have to put up the money up front that they would stand to lose. Of course, only the rich would be able to afford to do such a thing. This may surprise you, but that the lawyers in the ancient world charged an exorbitant rate. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, Further, the, 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 the jury members, those that would comprise the jury that would decide your case, were composed entirely of only wealthy Roman citizens. And so you would see the natural motivation on their part to judge in favor of the one who was also wealthy and and established. And finally, if you were found guilty, you would have to pay an additional financial damages on top of what you owed. And so this would be terrible for poor people. And ultimately, perhaps that's what Paul has in mind at the end of our passage in verse 8 when he says, you defraud your brother's. You're not only getting back what they owed you, but you are defrauding them in that there's these extra financial damages on top of what they owed you. And so there's a lot of evidence to show that the courts at Corinth were stacked in favor of the rich and that perhaps it was the rich who were using this to their own advantage in order to defraud their, their poorer fellow believers in Christ. And yet if the extreme partiality of the Corinthian courts was in Paul's mind, It's interesting to note that that isn't the main reason he gives for avoiding them. He calls them unrighteous, but he doesn't elaborate on that. Rather, he immediately jumps in verse 2 to remind his readers of the heavenly realities that are theirs in Christ Jesus. Look at that question in verse 2, or do you not know? And it's interesting that in this chapter, Paul repeats this question. It's a rhetorical question. Do you not know? In other words, you are not remembering the things that I taught you. And what is it here that he wants to remind his audience? Well, that we will judge the world. We will judge the world. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, and here I'm thinking in particular of Daniel chapter 7. Part of the promise of the salvation of God's people is that God's people one day will join together with him to condemn the sinful nations who had oppressed them. And our Lord repeats this promise in Matthew chapter 19 when he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He repeats this promise in Revelation chapter 3 when he says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And we see that fulfilled at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 20, where thrones are set, thrones for judgment, and those who have overcome are sit together with the risen Christ and judge the nations. And so since we are united to Christ, it's important for us as a believer, we do not need to fear judgment day. We are united to Christ, and for us, judgment has passed, as Jesus reminded us in in John chapter 3, You are not condemned. And at the last day, what we have to look forward to at the last day is that we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted as we appear vindicated together with Christ 
in glory. And together with him, we will share in delivering the verdict upon the living and the dead. I want you just to let that sink in for a bit. We often think of God as the judge at the last day. But God will will judge the world through Christ and through us united together with him. What an amazing and somber privilege that we have in order to do that. And if that's true of us, if we, in fact, will one day judge the world together with Christ, how much more should we be capable of judging what Paul calls trivial cases, matters that pertain to this life? Here he's making the argument from the greater to the lesser. If we are really the first fruits of the new creation, who will one day judge the world, how can the church shirk its responsibility to settle these relatively minor cases that rise in our midst? You see, as bad as it was for believers to be dragging each other to court, the real tragedy here is that the church was failing to live in light of the fact that we are united to the risen Christ. The church was failing to act in a manner that was consistent with the fact that we have been given the spirit of Christ, that we are spiritual people, as Paul says, who judge all things and are judged by no one, that we have the mind of Christ and are able to subject this entire creation to through his discerning gaze. And that he's given us his word and spirit so that we might be able to judge rightly and settle these trivial cases that arise within us. You see, Paul repeats himself in verse 3 to reiterate the point when he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now here, I think we might be forgiven to to respond to Paul's question, do you not know that we are to judge angels by saying, "Uh, no, Paul, I was not aware of that fact. We're going to judge angels? Well, yes. You see, Paul has already included angels amongst men as those that comprise the entire world, the entire created order. As he said back in chapter 4, he says, I think God has set us as apostles as last of all, as a spectacle to the world before men and angels. See, angels are also part of God's reasonable creatures, part of God's uh, uh, creation that will at the last day be judged. And we, together with the risen Christ, will deliver a verdict not only against the living and the dead, but also against the angels of God, and in particular, the fallen angels, as they are condemned to hell. You see, this was mankind's destiny from the beginning. As the Lord God allowed the serpent to slither into the garden, the point of that encounter was so that Adam would be able to render a verdict against the serpent to condemn him. And yet where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. And we will join together with Christ to condemn Satan and his minions. Now, if that's the case, if we're going to deliver what we can call eschatological judgment against Satan and the demons together with the fallen world, Are we incompetent to decide these these things pertaining to life? This is small stuff, small stuff in comparison. And yet what happens when we have disputes with one another, 
We drag our fellow believers, our brothers, to those who have no standing in the church. Look there in verse 4. Why do, you, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? The church was delegating its responsibilities to those who had no business dealing with the intramural conflicts that arose within the congregation. Now, this is, this is very interesting in light of what actually happened to the Apostle Paul when he was at Corinth some years prior. We read in Acts chapter 18 that when Paul was brought to Corinth and he was preaching in the synagogue, that he ultimately was kicked out of the synagogue and the Jews that were opposing him dragged him to the civil courts in Corinth. Paul knew what it was like to be dragged to the court. And he was brought before the proconsul Gallio. And the Jews brought the accusation saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. You see, what they were trying to do was get Paul in trouble with the Roman authorities for preaching a religion that was not authorized by the Roman government. You could only preach religions that were authorized by the Roman government. Judaism was authorized, and yet they were trying to say Paul's preaching something contrary to Judaism. And as Paul was about to open his mouth to defend himself before the proconsul, Gallio turns and says to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. It's interesting here we see Gallio recognize the fact that this is not part of his jurisdiction. He says, if it were a criminal case, I would hear your case. But since this is a religious matter, you guys deal with it. Ironically, the Corinthians were not able to learn from that lesson and that they were dragging what were ultimately internal conflicts within the church to the civil courts, to people who have no standing in the church. They have no authority within the governing body of the church. Now, this is what's important to understand, that if there are those who have no standing in the church, literally those who are despised in the church, as Paul says, this clearly implies that there ought to be those who are within the church who do have standing who are honored and given authority to rule the church of God. These people are designated in Scripture as overseers or as elders. The authority given to the church is is given to the whole church, but it is is, uh, worked out through the officers of the church. And so we need to keep in mind the context that when Paul talks about the church settling these, these disputes the authority that is given to the church by the risen Christ, the same authority that's mentioned in chapter 4, and just or sorry, in chapter 5, verse 4, as we read there that when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That same authority that the Lord Jesus has given to the church whereby we might, in the most extreme cases, excommunicate somebody, declare that somebody is outside of the kingdom of God with the real authority of Christ through his spirit, that same church authority is assumed here. As Paul says, you need to settle these disputes within the church. 
And so we need to understand that Christ ultimately has given us the authority, has given us his spirit, he's given us the wisdom and discernment to be able to settle these relatively minor disputes that inevitably arise amongst sinners. And that's why Paul then turns to sarcasm in verse 5 when he says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle these disputes? It's interesting he used this term wise, wise enough. Uh, One commentator says this is biting irony because the Corinthians fancied themselves as exceedingly wise, at least according to worldly standards. Paul spends the first four chapters of this book contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God displayed through the cross. And yet Paul sarcastically says, are are none of you wise enough? Is there not one person who is able to settle these disputes? Well, actually, according to Scripture, there should be more than one person. According to the command and promise of our Lord, where he says, where two or more are gathered together, there in my name I will be with them. Matthew chapter 18, a lot of people miss the fact that Paul's being sarcastic. He's not saying that there should only be one person to settle the disputes, but rather there should be two or more to settle these disputes in accordance with the way in which Christ has established church government. And by the, that, by the way, is why we are Presbyterian. No one person has the authority uh, to, to wield authority within the church, but all things must be done with a plurality of leadership two or more, through deliberation, through uh, searching the scriptures, through prayer with the authority of Jesus Christ to make, the, to make these decisions, to settle these disputes, and that there's always a way to appeal your case if you feel like you got a raw deal. And sadly, in our day and age, churches have moved away from this biblical model of church government and have become entirely autonomous to themselves. And these autonomous churches are voluntary institutions which have no real authority over its members, nor accountability for its leaders. And so you have the vast majority of American Christians who do not submit to their leaders and whose leaders have no accountability. And so no wonder why we take each other to court in order to settle our disputes. And sadly, many will quote this passage and claim immunity from legal action because they're Christians, and yet they do not submit to a well-ordered church. Somehow, we all know that we're not supposed to sue each other, but we ignore God's ordained means of settling these disputes through the authority that God has given to the church. So that's the tragedy here as Paul goes on to speak in verse 6 of brother going against brother. He, he uses this, this word brother four times in these last few verses to remind us that we are part of the family of God. Not only an institution, we are a family. And it would be unthinkable in the ancient world for a brother to sue a brother in the civil courts. That would all be settled within the household. And so that's why Paul goes... Now, in in verse 7, to address really the heart of the matter for the individuals, as they are doing this, he he rebukes their motivation for dragging their brother to the courts. He says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You see, people go to court to win. 
They go to court to win, not to settle a dispute, not to be reconciled to your brother. They go to court to win. But Paul says, when you do that, you've already lost. Even for the rich who, if they go to the civil court, their win, their their victory is almost guaranteed. He says, no, you have already lost. Why? Because you you show yourself to be conformed to this world rather than transformed by the renewal of your minds. And then he goes on to address the way in which our attitudes ought to be when we have disputes with one another. And here he turns us to the mind of Christ. He addresses us to the way of the cross when he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You see, following the example of our Lord, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2. And so the attitude of the follower of Jesus Christ, who takes up his cross daily, should be to forfeit our rights rather than harm our brother or bring disrepute upon the name of Christ. We should rather willingly give up our legal claims if it's going to bring harm against God's church. We should prefer financial loss rather than bring reproach upon the name of Christ and division within the church. So the attitude should be, I don't care about the money. I care about my brother. Our motivation should be love, not greed. And that's why I think we have this very interesting story in Luke chapter 12, where one day our Lord is teaching, and in the midst of the crowd, one person in the crowd stands up and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You see this guy seizing an opportunity. He knows that Jesus is a prominent rabbi. He knows that people listen to him, and he thinks, I'm going to have Jesus tell my brother that he needs to settle, he needs to share the inheritance with me. A very acrimonious type of things, you know, siblings disputing over the, the inheritance. You know what Jesus said to that man? Jesus said, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And we might think at that point, well, wait a minute. You're the son of the living God. You're Jesus. You're going to judge the living and the dead at the last day. Can you not settle this minor dispute amongst brothers over an inheritance? And yet Jesus says, no, I'm not going to settle this. I'm not going to settle this dispute. I'm not your judge or arbitrator in this matter. But Then what does he go on to say? He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, Jesus refused to to settle this dispute amongst brothers with regard to inheritance, but he does judge that man. He judges his heart, and he says, you are being, your heart is led by covetousness. You are motivated by greed, and he warns the entire crowd to beware of covetousness, Because life does not consist in the abundance of stuff, of possessions. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
This is the way of Christ. Giving up our rights, not clinging to the things of this life, knowing that we are laying up and storing treasure in heaven where rust and moth do not destroy and thieves cannot steal. And yet rather than keeping these things in mind, rather than doing, following the mind of Christ and the way of the cross, the people in Corinth were defrauding and wronging their own brothers, taking them to the court, they were harming fellow members of the body of Christ. Well, may we be on guard. It is so easy for us in our 21st century American culture to cling to our rights, to cling to our possessions, to fight tooth and nail, to hold on to our stuff. And Jesus says that for, the sake, for his sake, we may be called to give those things up. And Peter one day recognized the fact that he had given up quite a bit, quite a bit. He'd given up his career to follow after Jesus Christ. He had lost many things. And he wanted Jesus to, to take note, note of that. In Mark chapter 10, Peter begins to say to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. May God write his law on our heart. May he give uh, us love for our brother as we take up our cross and follow after our Lord. Amen. Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do not thank, we, we thank you that you did not come to this world to condemn the world. You did not come to this world to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. And in saving us, O oh Lord, you have set an example so that we might follow in your footsteps. So we pray, O oh Lord, that you would save us from the sins of greed and covetousness, that you would, that you would deliver us from the divisions and strife and animosity that inevitably arises within the church. And grant to us wisdom, O Lord, to execute justice and to maintain the peace and purity and unity of the church. And may we all do all of this to your glory. And we ask this in your name. Amen.